Okay, so I think we're ready to go. Good evening. Shavua Tov. My name is Chaim Angel. I'm the rabbinic scholar here at KJ. It's been a wonderful almost year already in this capacity, at least in a pretty robust way. So I'm grateful to KJ for its hospitality and also for becoming the home for the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals, who is the co-sponsor of this lecture. I'm its national scholar. So I wear two hats all the time. I also have a third hat teaching at Yeshiva University, but that's a different hat. Although it relates to this also somehow. But anyway, it's all, it's all connected. Uh, the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals was founded in 2007 by my father, in part because rabbis never retire. Right? That, that, but, but also it's a vision. The vision is to try to find ways of uniting the Jewish community, which is so fragmented, and is becoming increasingly so, with the push to all sorts of extremes, none of which are helpful, none of which are good for the Jews. So that's what my father started in 2007. I came on board in 2013, and my motto has been from the beginning, I'll start with the humorous part of it, and then we'll we'll move to the more serious component. Dr. Norman Lamb and I used to pray in the same minyan for many, many, many years. I'll pull the mic a little closer. I think my big move is to be able to stand totally still, and just be able to do that, and it will work. But uh, I apologize, it's... uh, so Dr. Lam and I pray together on a regular basis, and you know, when you tell a joke to a lot of people a lot of times, it's hard to remember who you told what to. So I've heard this joke from him dozens of times, so I can attest that it really, and it was always the same, and it was always important. His argument was, and given, given the sorts of things that he's dealt with in his lifetime, I understand it very well, he says there's one decisive proof that the sages of the Talmud had a great sense of humor. And that is, that it says in, the, in several places in the Talmud, Talmidei chachamim marbim shalom ba'olam. But the Talmud says on multiple occasions that great Torah scholars bring peace to the world. And he says that's, uh, those sages sure had a good sense of humor. And, that, and that's, how he intended, that's how he intended the line. I actually believe that the sages meant it more literally. Pertains to the topic, I suppose. Good scholarship in, 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 in Torah always brings people closer together. Talmidei Chachamim really can bring shalom la'olam. They really can bring fragmented people together. Jews made a big mistake. They came up with this terrible stereotype of two Jews, three opinions. I say that that's great. In fact, one learned Jew alone probably has 20 to 50 opinions. Right? That's a good thing. Torah is infinite. It's not surprising that there are different ways of approaching it and that no two of us will approach it exactly the same way. Right? That's a positive in our religion. That's that's never been bad. What's bad is when there are rifts. Rifts means we can't even talk to each other because of our disagreements. That's no good. That's unacceptable and that never, ever, ever was the intent of the Torah in any capacity. So to me, Talmidei Chachamim Marbim Sha'olam has been my motto in working for the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals, where our goal is to bring out a multiplicity of perspectives within tradition, not with the goal of getting everybody to agree or my way is the highway, but to understand there are multiple avenues to our tradition, they're all good, sometimes they severely disagree with each other, like tonight's topic is all about that, and that's okay, because they're still very much within the tradition. So the goal is never conformity, the goal is unity. And that's what we stand for. And if, you have, if you're not already a member of the Institute, I hope that you will join. It's very easy and it's not even a lot of money. It's $100 for a year to become part of it. We put out a journal three times a year and lucky you, if you're not already a member, well, you could change that. But there are copies of our most recent journal right next to the cheesecake, which you will be able to enjoy at the end, at the end of this talk. Even if you don't have the cheesecake, you're still welcome to take a journal. It's our most recent one on Jewish education. So without further ado, this topic is one as a professor of Tanakh. It's something that I deal with on a very regular basis. It's also something just as a human being talking to other thoughtful human beings in a Jewish community. It's something that comes up all the time. There are plenty of people, whether you're among them because you came tonight is, 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 is within your purview, but there are plenty of people in any community that struggle with various issues of we're connected to the Torah in whatever way we are, we observe some or much or all of the Torah in our way. We belong to communities that support Torah. But what's the real deal when we read the Torah? You know, Bilam's donkey sees an angel and all of a sudden, you know, sits down and then Bilam whaps it and then a couple more times, finally the donkey says, Yay, boss, 
What's up? Have I not been a faithful donkey to you all this time? Bilam is like, yeah, but this is ridiculous. What are you stopping in the road for? So it's a fabulous story. But if you're a believing Jew, what's up? Like, must, must one take all of that? In the realm of science, I don't need to tell you. The faith science thing has been a fun one for a long time. But okay, so the world was created in seven days. And we keep Shabbat as a direct consequence of that. And what happens if the world is 15 billion years old? What do you do with that as a believing Jew? How does one, or what are the avenues through which one can address this sort of question? Um, it's not only coming, you know, I don't believe in any wings. You know, people talk about left, right, center, it's all nonsense, it's all labels, and those things also help to divide us even more than is possibly necessary or helpful. Right? I don't, I don't believe in wings. What I do believe in is that, based on the stereotype, okay, so the faith science questions are always things that are quote-unquote more to the left, but they're just, these questions are very much pertinent to the quote-unquote right also. And very often the quote-unquote right doesn't realize how important this is with the way they think about it. For example, I open up my Tanakh, and we just talked about it in our Wednesday night Bible survey not that long ago. And King David, the most beloved person in our history, the founder of the eternal dynasty, the composer of many psalms, founder of the messianic dynasty, and a pretty righteous person, committed adultery and murder. That's it. That's what it says. It's black on white. There are zero ambiguities in the text. And yet, if you ask any good yeshiva student, did that really happen? They would say, absolutely not. Right? They would say there was a writ of divorce. It wasn't murder at all. But wait a minute. The text doesn't make any remote hint that King David is remotely exonerated. He's, he's guilty of the, of the worst imaginable crimes, sins, terrible things. And he repents for all of that. So it's not just a left or right issue. Everybody actually struggles with this sort of thing in different ways and on different topics and and for different reasons. But I think that's what it all comes down to. Rambam, as is always going to be the case in any discussion of anything Jewish, but he will be a prominent player here, but certainly not the only one, he believed in the following principle. Rambam as a good, believing Jew par excellence and also as a very rational individual. He said, there absolutely cannot be a conflict between Torah and reason and science. Can't be. For the simple reason that God made all of those things. God gave us the Torah. And God created the cosmos. It cannot be that God who wrote the Torah would say something that's wrong in the science that he also wrote. So if you and I perceive conflicts between Torah and Science, that's because we're misunderstanding something. Right? Because in God's world, it cannot be that there is a conflict. And he says the same thing with regard to reason. Rambam certainly was very rational, and he probably would have argued, and correctly, that he was unusually, unusually rational. He was better than average. <laughs> right? But God is more rational still. God is the supremely rational being. Okay, so once again, God cannot say or do anything that would be unreasonable or crazy. We might not always understand what God is up to, but it cannot be that God is actually crazy. That's a basic premise that Rambam has. Rambam's God is not crazy. I think that's a good premise. So when he comes into Tanakh, his starting point is, look, God revealed it, and it all must be reasonable. So if you just think about it from a historicity point of view, what does that actually mean? What would Rambam say must be taken literally? Well, almost everything, because almost everything is quite reasonable, right? But anything that is unreasonable cannot be taken literally. That's his rule, and so that's exactly how he says it in source number one. Again, for those who are just coming, there are source sheets way on that neat-looking table thing over there. And I always have an emergency stash. That's the way that I do things. Okay. Rambam says, I believe every possible happening that is supported by a prophetic statement and do not strip it of its plain meaning. Meaning I take it as literally as anybody else. I fall back on interpreting a statement when he says that it isn't even code. Sometimes Rambam speaks in code. Here what he means by interpreting is what you and I would call reinterpreting. Right? That's, that's what he means by it. He's saying I'm going to give you a different explanation only when its literal sense is impossible, like the corporeality of God. Meaning God cannot have a body. That's impossible. And therefore, every single time it says, God has a hand, God's nostrils are blazing again because he's angry at something, 
That simply cannot be taken literally. In fact, according to Rambam, that must not be taken literally by a believing Jew or else you stop being a believing Jew in that particular case. So he uses that as the banner example. Let me just finish the paragraph and then go for it. The possible, however, remains as stated. Rambam's point is, as long as it's reasonable, that's exactly how it goes. If it's unreasonable, if it's impossible, then we must reinterpret. Yeah. The weakness with Rambam's thing is that then you have the conclusion is what the text says it doesn't mean, and what it means it doesn't say. So, for example, in the case of the talking donkey, no, it does mean a talking. It does. It does mean a talking donkey. But that's not reasonable. Well, you have to give give Rambam a chance. And so far, I'm just talking about. So far, I'm just giving the hand of God thing. So Rambam would say, well, it still says it, right? Just let's follow up your flaw on the example that we're talking about right now. He would say that obviously must be understood as God's power. In other words, it is meaningful, but it cannot mean what a four-year-old would read it as, right? If you show it to a four-year-old and they're able to read and they know what Yad Hashem means, they would say, oh, God has hands. Well, it cannot mean that. Rather, it means God's power. It certainly always has meaning. And we have to talk about Bilam's donkey too. You're for, of course you're right. Rambam, when he takes things unliterally or when he reinterprets things, he certainly finds them meaningful. But just not with the literal meaning as its meaning. That's all. And we'll talk about your example because it's a powerful question. Okay. So let's start with the easiest thing, which nobody ever thought about. I mean, people debate, but, but that, this isn't where the fights are. You should realize that there are plenty of examples in the Bible where it's very obvious that there's no way that the authors meant them literally because they're just crazy poetic exaggeration. Not crazy in a bad way. So the Talmud already points that out. Rabbi Ami said, the Torah speaks in, spoke in exaggerated terms, as in the verse, the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. That's, you know, people are talking about the walls of the Canaanite city. And it says that the, there, we still use terms like skyscraper here in New York and elsewhere, right? I hope not too many people take that overly literally in terms of that point actually scraping anything up there, right? We all know what it means. So the Talmud is saying, well, you know what? We don't have skyscrapers because we're being written in the 4th century CE or whenever we're, we're talking here. And, but it doesn't matter. We all understand that when Moshe or the spies talk about Canaanite city's walls that are up to the heavens, what does it mean? Very tall. Yeah. So it's not this fundamentalist position that every word must be taken as hyper-literal literal. In fact, in certain cases, it just cannot be. So the Talmud basically makes the point in a much more modest scale than what Rambam is going to make on a far more sweeping scale. Right? Everybody understood that there's such a thing as poetic exaggeration. And the question is only, when does one apply it? In this case, it's sort of easy, which is why the Talmud uses it. But the question is always going to be for later commentators, okay, we got that one, that was easy, how far do you go? Same as, going back to your question, Okay, fine. Let's grant that God's hand means God, God's power. But how far can that go within the bounds of tradition? As soon as you open that door, slippery slope time, that's what's always going to happen. Because, okay, well, maybe this is unreasonable and that is unreasonable. Who is to decide what's possible and impossible? So here's where our commentators swing into action. On average, this is a, this is a really great thing about Tanakh, there is absolutely no interaction between the worlds of the living and the world of the dead. Once you die, you're dead. Whatever happens over there is not the business of Tanakh at all. It doesn't talk about afterlife. It doesn't talk about what happens to your soul. Tradition has all kinds of things to say and multiple opinions, but you read through the entire Bible cover to cover. It ain't about the afterlife. It's about this life right here and how to make it the best on a personal level and how to build the ideal society. Right, that's where we're all about. There's an afterlife, but it's certainly not the business of Tanakh to really go for that. Okay, so, but there's one time in the whole Bible where there actually is interaction between the world of the living and the world of the dead. And that's where poor King Saul, toward the end of his life, is seriously unraveling. He's not in a good place. In fact, he hasn't been for a bunch of chapters by now. It's very depressing. I'm already sad, and that wasn't even my topic tonight, okay? But i got to mention it to mention this. He's going down the tubes, and at some point, out of sheer desperation, he got to talk to God. He needs some kind of prophetic insight into something. 
So he turns to the prophets, he turns to the Urim Vitumim, he hopes to get a prophetic style dream Joseph, you know, by the way of Joseph. He goes through the legitimate avenues of trying to ascertain some divine will somewhere, and he's over everything. God isn't talking to him. All right, so now he's really desperate. So he says, okay, if you try all the legitimate things, we need a witch. Not just any old witch, we need the kind of witch who knows how to conjure up spirits of the dead. And here's the only place I could think of, maybe you can come up with others and share them with me afterwards, where the English translation is so much better than the Hebrew. Usually the Hebrew is the best way to say anything. But here it's the witch of Endor. I mean, come on. That's like Star Wars quality material. You know, in terms of just the... You can write a novel, The Witch of Endor, and you can have blank pages and I would buy it. Okay, it's just such a great title. Whereas the Balat Ov, uh, I don't know, of Endor, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same ring. I don't know what it is. But anyway... So he goes to the witch of Endor, and look at source number four over here. Saul disguised himself, put on different clothes, and set out with two men. They came to the woman by night, and he said, Please divine for me by a ghost. Bring up for me the one I shall name you. So of course, you know, you slap a $20 bill on the counter, and then she says, All right, whose spirit do you want? So, well, if you're already shelling out 20 bucks, you want the prophet Samuel. Who else are you going to ask for, right? So at that, the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? He answered, Bring up Samuel for me. The woman recognized Samuel, and she shrieked loudly, and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And then Samuel communicates, not in the passage that you have, but read the next few verses. Samuel actually talks to Saul, and says, basically, tomorrow you're going to join me up here. Right? It's an amazing story. But this triggers a fierce debate among our medieval commentators, over, is this this possible? We all know that it's prohibited to go to a witch to conjure up the souls of the dead. Torah forbids that very severely. But the question is, is it possible that this particular woman could do it? Or that any particular man or woman could do it? Is it possible for there to be this kind of witchcraft where you conjure up the souls of the dead? Now you understand what we would call a Protestant fundamentalist position would be, That's what the Bible says, right? The story happened. We take it as literal truth. The woman called up Samuel's spirit. Samuel talked to Saul. The end. Several medieval commentators were truly embarrassed by that reading. Truly embarrassed. Great believing Jews, great rabbis. And they came up with possibilities, ranging from, there was a guy hiding underneath the table. This woman, like all the other ones like them, are quacks. Right? That's one possibility. So the text relates not what happened, but rather what Saul perceived as happening. Because the guy under the table was doing a swell job. Alternatively, if you want to be a little less deviating from the actual text, which makes it very matter-of-fact, actually, this woman was a quack because there's no such thing as witchcraft. But on this particular day, God actually made a miracle, and Samuel's spirit really did come, like the story says, which is why the woman shrieked so loudly. She couldn't believe it. She's like, wait, this isn't supposed to really work. (laughs) Right? So that's a more moderate way of taking the story, not at its face value. But maintaining a philosophical position that there is no such thing as witchcraft that works. Plenty of witches are out there. Man, you can go today. Plenty, you know, go down any avenue. For five bucks, you can get all kinds of future being told for you. And not as extreme as necessarily even getting the soul of of the departed called up. So one camp of commentators say, we cannot, we must not take this story at its face value. Even though it's right here in the Bible. It cannot be that this really happened, as, as is written. To the other camp, which says, what are you talking about? This is what is written here, which means, obviously... It is possible for somebody to do it. It's prohibited. King Saul did a terrible sin by doing this. right? And anybody else who ever tried that would, would also be committing a terrible sin. And Ramban, who very strongly believes in witchcraft, just says, not only is it prohibited for Jews to do this, but he grants most practitioners are indeed quacks. He doesn't think everybody who you know, has a shingle out is necessarily the real deal. But he believes from this story, among other things, that... The possibility exists. Whereas the Rambam team and before him several Geonim and even Ezra said it's, it's, it's just not possible, yeah? That's exactly right. According to the people who believe there's no such thing. It's the same thing as idolatry. 
We don't believe that there are those other deities, but if somebody serves those other deities, goodbye. Maybe God says, don't worship those I'm aware of all these verses, and, and you and I should have a great conversation about this afterwards. Let's grant the point for now that the Torah repudiates the belief in other deities, that there's no such thing as these other deities. And, and, and therefore, the point is, if one serves them, they're false, but you're still going to die. It's a capital crime. So they would argue the same for witchcraft as well. So here's an example where some commentators believe in Rambam's premise, this is impossible. And others say, Why? Why should you assume that this is impossible? It's possible. We're not allowed to do it, but it's, but it's, it's possible. Here's another good one. The prophet Hosea, living in the 8th century BCE in the northern kingdom of Israel, probably the last northern prophet. He was around at the time of the exile of the northern kingdom, the ten lost tribes. His very first prophecy is the sort of thing that they should not teach in second grade, and I'm happy to report I've never heard of a Jewish day school that teaches Hosea in any kind in the second grade, so we're okay. But in the meantime, the first thing that happens, first prophecy, right here in chapter 1, when the source 5, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go get yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom, for the land will stray from following the Lord. So he went and married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim. She conceived and bore him a son. She had three kids. That's what the rest of the chapter is about. And poor kids, they had to deal with very symbolic names, which would have put them in a very bad place come nursery school. But that's, that's their problem. That's our problem for another day. For our, for our purposes now, God's very first command to the prophet Hosea, a very holy man connected to God, is to go marry this woman who's going to cheat on him. And arguably was a prostitute beforehand. So, and the reason, by the way, just to make sure that it's clear, is that this would have been a phenomenally effective visual aid to teach the people of Israel that just as my wife is cheating on me, you're cheating on God. That's the point. But the question is, is it possible for God to command a prophet to do this in the first place? And if you read the story, it sounds like it just all happened. So in comes Rambam. Source 6. God is too exalted than that he should turn to his prophets into a laughingstock and a mockery for, for fools by ordering them to commit acts of disobedience. The position is similar with regard to the words addressed to Hosea. Take unto you a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. All this story concerning the birth of the children and their having been named so-and-so happened in its entirety in a vision of prophecy. If we, you and I were to take a time machine back and went next to Hosea, A... How awesome is that? But B, if we came to his Shabbat table after this whole episode, how many people would be at the Shabbat table? No, come on. Two, him and you. You just came, so two. You've got to keep score. Come on, it's all, it's, it's all about keeping score. In the meantime, two. The point is that this wife, Gomer, and the three kids don't exist. Or if Gomer exists, she exists somewhere else, not at his Shabbat table, right? He never married her, and they never had these kids. This was a prophetic vision, according to Rambam, that Hosea then obviously revealed to the people. And the point was to tell them, in my vision, this is what happened, and you are like her. You're cheating on God. So it's still real. It goes back to your question again. It's still real, but it's not real in the historical sense. You and I taking a time machine back, being right there, would see Hosea, but we would see him in his bed or wherever he received prophecy. Right? We would not see these other characters showing up at all. And then in the morning, we would see Hosea going out onto the streets and writing a scroll and promoting his message. According to Rambam, you have to be an absolute fool to think that this really happened. Because the God of Israel would never command this to his prophets. And when Rambam calls you an absolute fool, boy, oh boy, do you want a big hole to crawl into, right? It, it, he, he means business. And he's not alone. Even Ezra before him also was absolutely sure. He said, God forbid that God would do this, that he would command his prophets to go out there and marry a woman who would cheat on him or a prostitute, either one. Well, one of Rambam's greatest fans of all time, Rambam has attracted many fans and also many critics. One of his greatest fans was a Barbanel. Daniel Scott of Arbanel in 15th and 16th centuries, he loved Rambam more than anything. In his old age, he wrote a letter to his friend Shaul of Arbanel. Arbanel was a very well-read man. He was a very wealthy man and had access to every book that was around. And he went to several countries over his lifetime, so he was able to get into different libraries. He had lots of access. 
So he writes a letter to his friend Shaul as he's growing older. He's already in Italy after the expulsion. And he says, you know, when I was younger, I used to read it all. You know, barreled through all these books. It was terrific. But now that I'm old, you've got to focus on the best. So I only read two books all day long. One is Tanakh, the Bible. And the other one is Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed. Those were his two favorite books. He thought these were the two greatest books of faith ever written. And so he spent all the rest of his days just reading these two, and he's written commentaries on both. So I give you that preface, because here's what Abarbanel has to say about Rambam's comment with regard to Gomer. Source 7. One must be extremely astonished at these learned scholars, referring to Ibn Ezra and Rambam. How could they advance this kind of sweeping principle in prophetic narrative? How dare they? If the text testifies that the action occurred, we have no right to depart from its plain sense, lest we interpret the verses incorrectly. Indeed, it is infidelity and a grave sin to contradict the plain sense of the verses. If this is what we do to them, this disease, and he refers to the Hebrew as tzarat, you never want to get tzarat, right? Will spread over all verses and reveal interpretations that contradict their veracity. Abarbanel looks at two of the greatest interpreters of anything of all time. You have Ibn Ezra and Rambam. What a great team. And Abarbanel says, how dare they? This is a breach in our religion. If a prophetic text says that God commanded a prophet to do something, and it reports that he did it, which it does, that's the end of the story. That means that it happened. How dare you say that that's impossible? Of course it's possible. Prophets are telling us that it happened. Of course it's possible. And he goes on to explain, God made Hosea do this extreme act because it was extreme religious times. The people of Israel were so unfaithful to God that they needed a very stark example to demonstrate to them just how rotten they have been and how unfaithful they have been. So this is a very severe debate, and we need to understand that. When we're walking into this sort of thing, okay, fine, God doesn't have a hand. We're all good with that one. Abarbanel is fine with that. We can reinterpret that easily. But here's a a historical account of an event, and it's treated as a historical account. Abarbanel says there is no wiggle room here. This is what prophecy says. This is our belief, period. Whereas Ibn Ezra and Rambam say this is impossible. Only fools, including Abarbanel, think this. And Abarbanel is basically saying, Ibn Ezra and Rambam, of course, are not heretics, because they're two of the greatest interpreters ever, but this view is heresy. This view goes beyond the pale of faith. Yeah. Um, could, could the problem be um, with the, with the uh, prostitute uh, image and the post-Christian usage of, you know, uh, Mary Magdalene and Christ and everything, that they got that nuts about it? That it isn't a vacuum that they're arguing about this. Um, and it's one thing, as you say, to, to, to argue theoretically about the metaphor of the hand of God. What we're dealing with, you know, black on white words and people's lives, and we're going to get to David in a minute, so I'm not going to say that, but right. I mean, you know, it's really stretching, and maybe there's something underneath that got these, these medievalists and others so bananas about it. Yeah, look, you're, you're certainly right that there are often polemical contexts, whether against Christians or against Karaites or against, you know, just trying to defend the rationality of the Torah. There, rabbis lived in real times and are real people and often are responsive to various circumstances, and indeed, they should be, right? So you, you might argue that sometimes that may compromise, quote-unquote, objective, pure scholarship. The only thing is there's no real such thing as purely objective scholarship because we're all shaped whether we want to admit it or not, we're all shaped by our times. The only thing that I try to keep in my own scholarship and checks and balances is, that's why I like these debates. When you hear such forceful, I mean, this is a forceful debate going down, right? I mean, name-calling, severe, we're defending, they're trying to define the boundaries of our faith. For Rambam, no god of mine would ever do this, right? For Barbanel, no person has any business telling prophecy what it should or shouldn't say, in other words, the, you could treat them as stark principles in any time. In other words, you and I hearing that not having to deal with Mary Magdalene, right? Still might say, you know, that's a pretty good debate. Even though, of course, you're right that there are often historical contexts that in, suggest either the tone or the particular passion in a, in a, a debate, of course. Uh, here's another good one, angels. The first term paper I ever wrote in, in college was on angels that wrestle and eat lunch. I thought it was really interesting, you know. Abraham, you know, three angelic visitors show up to announce the forthcoming birth of Yitzchak. 
And, you know, they prepare a banquet for them, and there's some cake, and there's some veal, and all this. It's lovely, right? And they munch away, right? So wait, so if you think of angels as these metaphysical beings, what's going on here? Like, how do they see them, and what's up with the lunch? Or another angel that just shows up and wrestles with Yaakov and amazingly loses. What's up with that? But, but you know, it's an, it's, an, it's an amazing story. But if we took a time machine back, what would we see? Right, it's the what happened question for both of these stories and for so many others like that. And Bilaman is talking donkeys. Now we can talk about your case directly. All of them. So Rambam believes that two things you cannot see while in a waking state if you personally are sane. One is you'll never see a talking donkey. Another one is you'll never see an angel. Huh? You see what? Ooh. Yes. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Thank God I have a great name. I can't. I can't even help it. But in the meantime, that all, that all being said, you cannot see an angel. According to Rambam, it is impossible. Angels are metaphysical beings. You don't see them in the in a waking state. You can see them in a prophetic vision because you can see anything in a prophetic vision, right? So according to Rambam, any time the Torah reports that so and so saw angels, there's a prophetic vision going on. You and I, if we took a time machine back, we would not see a winged being or any other kind of being schmoozing with the characters. We would see at best a character in a prophetic vision or perhaps some kind of level of inspiration. So in the, so in the Bilam story, you get a double play here. You get a talking donkey and an angel. So according to Rambam, you kill those two birds with one stone, right? In other words, all of this is a prophetic vision. And you and I would see none, none of that. We'd see Bilam going to try to curse Israel and he's not going to succeed. But we would not see any, we'd see a donkey even, but we wouldn't see any meaningful conversation or interaction between these two characters. That all happened in a prophetic vision, right? And, yeah, sorry? Yeah, I just wanted to ask, uh, going back to seven, how do you reconcile them? I'm not going to reconcile them, but I do have an approach for you, but, but I'm not up to the approach. Right now, I like going through evidence. That's what I, I, can't, I can't even help myself. There's a systematic approach to, let's see areas where there are some serious glo- you know, gauntlets being thrown down, let them tear each other apart. Let's see where the boundaries are. And then we can try to... I'm not going to reconcile them. They're at each, they're at each other's throats. Rambam and Abarbanel will never, ever get along on this issue. Right? But what I'm trying to do is set out here the debates. And then I think we can come to a sort of a middle position that I find very comfortable. And that isn't going to really reject either one. And isn't going to really fully... you know, We're not going to allow this venom to continue. Okay? So, yeah. Right. Sometimes you can actually do that. And by the way, sometimes our commentators really do that. Like sometimes the word malach can be messenger with regard to it. Understood. In this particular case, if these are regular people, A, it's pretty amazing that they know that Sarah is going to give birth in a year. B, it's even more amazing that just two out of those three are able to destroy the city of Sodom after smiting all of the menfolk with blindness. Yeah, but regular, but I'm saying, but regular people usually can't do that stuff. So that's why most of our commentators assume that we're dealing with really, this is a manifestation of God's presence, meaning the metaphysical angel variety. So Rambam would say, that's fine, but you couldn't see them in a waking state, and neither could Avraham. Right, in other words, this is all happening in his prophetic vision. So Ramban, in this particular case, he throws his gloves right off and goes right after Rambam. And he says, What? This didn't happen? All the story about Sarah baking cakes and making this meal, that all happened in Abraham's vision, and all the dialogue, and she never really laughed because it's in his vision, not hers? Are you kidding me? We have two chapters with these angels in play. None of these stories happened. It all took place in Abraham's vision. Or with Yaakov and the wrestling match. Why is Yaakov limping afterwards if it was all a prophetic vision? Right? Right, so so that's what the counter-defense will say. But Ramban thinks... Forget about psychosomatic. This happened. And in fact, Ramban, as a mystic, tries to define how angels can take on some physicality. 
in order to be able to do these things when God wants them to. Right, which is kind of not far from what you were saying, but talking about metaphysical beings taking on a human form rather than people, you know, regular people that were people yesterday. Right. For sure. The, the advantage of that particular example is that it says that it's Yaakov's dream. Everybody agrees that it's a dream. Which is different from, but I'm saying, but that's different from a story of the wrestling match where the Torah doesn't talk about it as a dream. The Torah talks about it as a story. So Rambam says, okay, fine. It doesn't say that it was a dream, but it has to have been a dream because angel, you can't see angels in real life and you certainly cannot wrestle with them. Whereas Ramban says, well, evidently, Yaakov could because the Torah says so. And he also, he says it's prohibited to, to, to learn this Rambam, he says. And again, Rambam was also a huge fan of, of Rambam. But on this particular point, he says it is prohibited to learn this point. It is flat out wrong, and more importantly, it is flat out against the Torah. Okay, a couple more things, yeah? Okay, uh, Mark's a lot, uh, Mark's a lot story of the Torah. A lot in this entire household see in the So you're saying, are you saying it's the entire household Right, no, according to, according to the... It's not quite figment of imagination. A prophetic vision is something very real, but it's not the same thing as historical. So, yeah, yeah, that, they, nobody was smitten. You're correct. Within Rambam's view, those stories didn't happen the way that you're reading them. It's all part of a visionary process. So the multitude of that's There was a real city of Sodom. There were really, really rotten people. This is the sort of stuff they might have done. But this particular story didn't happen the way that you and I read it, within this view. And the other view, such as Ramban, it all happened exactly as you read it. And real people really got smitten by blindness by these real angels who were really there and who really grabbed load by the hand. All those things happened. If we took a time machine back, we'd see all that stuff, not as prophets. Right? Whereas Rambam says, no, 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 no. This is a prophecy and it belongs to Abraham. And what we're reading occurred in the world of prophecy, not in this world. Abraham. 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 Not Lot. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of a prophetic vision of Abraham. Yeah. That's all. Right. The answer is, of, the answer is of course, and the, the answer is of course. The question, and the, it's not just a question; it's a very severely passionate debate. You know, it's a debated point running through all of these stories: is how far does that go? Meaning, at some point, you could just say, "Look, if God is giving us the Torah, and He's reporting these stories, God should know how it goes, right? Right? Rambam and Abarbanel, thats their objection to Rambam's size. Like, what are you talking about? Figurative? This is God's voice telling us what happened. That's what happened." Right? And Rambam says, I believe that, that this is true also. Rambam believes it's every bit as true. He just doesn't think it's every bit as historical in these cases. Right? In other words, whether it's a, he doesn't usually go parable. Sometimes he goes parable. He's very into the prophetic vision idea. 
And so, so, let's, so, so, so far we have three different realms. We have three different realms. Let me just go a little bit further because we, we have a bunch of things to do and then, uh, I'm, I'm happy to go with the Q&A for quite a while. Here's another. The realms that we've talked about so far are realms where commentators are debating what is considered possible. Right? It all goes back to Rambam's thing that I always take it literally unless it's impossible. So Rambam says it's impossible for somebody to see an angel while awake. Okay. It's impossible for somebody to see a talking donkey while awake because donkeys don't talk. Okay, there you go. So these have to be understood as prophetic. It's impossible for God to command a prophet to marry a prostitute. That's Rambam's, he's taking his definition and he's running with it and he's very consistent. And Ramban and Abar Benel are saying, not so fast. How do you know that it's impossible? You're imposing your mindset onto the Torah. If the Torah says this is what happened, okay. It might not be part of our reality, right? But that doesn't mean it's not part of reality. And that's their counter-argument against Rambam, and, and, and they're basically calling it heretical. They're saying that to break the literal word of the Torah is incorrect within faith. Rambam's view is, you're very foolish if you think that these things are real. Rambam doesn't back away at all. He's very adamant that if something is impossible, God doesn't do the impossible. God does things that are possible. Here's another arena. Aristotle, and Plato for that matter, believe that this world has always been here. The earth has always been here. Based on philosophical constructs. You have to remember, it's hard to... We 21st century people have a tough time reading 12th century work sometimes because in the 12th century, you didn't have a philosophy, philosophy department and a science department. Or you could be a philosophy major and know zero about science. Or you could be a science major and know zero about philosophy. In the good old days, that was a spectrum. So when Rambam talks about conflict, faith-science conflicts, that includes logic. Right? It includes metaphysics, things that might be great for philosophy majors, but that a chemist doesn't necessarily learn anymore. Right? It's just very important to be conscious of that. So Rambam takes on Aristotle and Plato, who believe that this earth has always been here. Because after all, if you read the beginning of the Torah, it sounds like God created the universe, including the earth. So Rambam says, it's not in the source sheets, but it's in the Guide to the Perplexed, you know, the second section, chapter 25. He says, let me make it clear, says Rambam. I'm, my objection to Aristotle is not, the Torah says that God created the world, and therefore God created the world. Go away, Aristotle. This is against the Torah. He says, I want to make clear, that's not my objection. My objection is that Aristotle simply has not proven his case. It's not good science. But he says, if it were good science then I would reinterpret the Torah. Then obviously the world is eternal. If science can prove the eternality of the world, as he understood science being proven in the 12th century, well then that's fine. Then obviously that's the truth, because God knows what he's doing. And therefore we have to understand the Torah differently from the way that the simplest reading would be. So Rambam's default position again is, when you open up the Torah, it sounds like God created the earth. But if science would demonstrate otherwise, then we must say, okay, this is coming to teach something else. And, it's, and he invokes his God's hands thing. He says, look, just like I reinterpreted God's hands, because that's impossible. So if science can show me that the creation of the earth is impossible, okay. It's, we don't believe in impossible things. We believe in the real things. That's why there's never a faith, faith science conflict. I never understand why people have any problem with that. It's very, it's very, very clear. But you understand that there was another side to all of this as well. Okay. So that's another arena. This fellow, Natan Slifkin, you know, who got himself into a heap of hot water in the so-called right-wing community, excommunicated very often. Just recording this Rambam and related passages. This is a very well-trodden position. It's not some new innovation. It's simply not what they were teaching, and therefore, the best thing to do is try to squash it like a bug, which is really good for sales. And so Slifkin has, has done very well ever, ever, ever since because everybody wants it to read the book. But in the meantime, it's not just in the realm of, of science that this comes in. in my, if I put on my Bible scholar hat for just a second, Professor Uriel Simon, who was a great professor of Bible, taught at Bar-Ilan University for many years, wrote an article, 2002 or so, I don't know, around that, around that time, talking about what happens when there's a conflict between the literal reading of the Bible and archaeology. It's very different from science, but related. And let's say archaeologists come up with a whole different model from what we find in the Bible. So he says, 
He just says very point blank. He quotes this very Rambam. He says, we never have to believe something that is untrue. If archaeology can prove something, then, okay, we have no business disagreeing with something that is factual. Right? I will put in my footnote. He should have made a bigger fuss about this, I think, also, but I'll, I'll fuss. It is a rare day that biblical archaeology, one way or the other, proves anything. Right? I think anybody who reads archaeology understands, or at least responsible archaeologists on all sides of the spectrum understand, there's no way that archaeological models of today fully match what you find in the Bible. I wouldn't even expect that they should. Certain things you're just never going to find. But it's a very rare day that archaeology proves something that is in, in the Bible. You know, is not in the Bible, or disprove something that is in the Bible. If anything, if anything, they just often work on different axes, and very often I find it very helpful, but that's for another talk. So what matters so far? Everybody agrees that the word of God is, that this is the word of God, and that it is truth. The only debate, which is a very important one, and which gets, gets to a lot of name-calling, is what is considered possible or what is considered reasonable and when do you say whatever the Bible says literally is what the Torah obviously wants us to believe and when do you say that something that you deem unreasonable is not let's move to a totally different arena and that is David and Bathsheba again if you read the story it's actually one of the least ambiguous stories in the entire Bible it's so easy the Bible's filled with nuance all these complications and different stories and different ways of telling things and even how you debate a word. Our commentators are, have, they have a lot to write about because there are always ambiguities. Not in this story. You read the David and Bathsheba story it's just rotten. Everything is smooth and straightforward and it's just all bad. There's no, there's no wiggle room here. There really is none. So the Talmud jumps in. And when I say the Talmud, this is just a fatal flaw of most Jewish education everywhere. It drives me up a wall. So try to fix it in this room. When, it's, when, when Very often when Talmudic passages are quoted by anybody, they say, our sages say, or the Talmud says. Now, it's true, if you quote a Talmudic passage correctly, that some sages say it and it's in the Talmud, but it is a very rare day indeed that the rabbis of the Talmud agree on anything. Right? If you read any one page of the Talmud, let alone 2,700 plus pages, you will find, no matter, pick any page at random, you're going to find a lot of debates. In this particular case, most Talmudic passages take for granted that the story happened as literally written. That's full-blown adultery and murder. That's it. There is no other hand. There's this one passage which everybody does quote, and it's an important source to be aware of, but it's one view of several within the Talmud, and it's certainly not the majority view at all, but it's the one that everybody quotes, and it has become the rabbinic view. And that's something which is, is very scary, actually, because this selective quotation, not only is it bad scholarship, but it could lead to really bad religion. And, and, and so let's look at this one source that everybody does quote. Source 9. Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmeni said in Rabbi Yochanan's name, whoever says that David sinned is merely erring. <laughs> God said in the Bible that he's sinning. The prophet Natan said that he's sinning. So... Very big hitters are being put as erroneous here by this statement, right? For it is said, And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. That verse is in the Bible, but it's not in the Bathsheba story. It's way earlier than that. And indeed, David was a very righteous man, but then he just made this colossally big mistake. Is it possible that sin came to his hand, yet the divine presence was with him? Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmeni said in Rabbi Yochanan's name, everyone who went out in the wars of the house of David wrote a bill of divorcement for his wife. So she wasn't married. She was divorced. Okay, it's a complicated issue, which I really don't want to drag into to go through the technicalities of, of what the Talmud is doing. Basic point is that, according to this view, King David did not actually commit adultery. Bathsheba had been married, but at the moment she was divorced, and therefore it was wrong Nobody would say that what he did was very nice and fully legitimate, but there is a far cry between icky and adultery. So this Talmudic passage is saying it was icky, but it's not adultery. Right. They have a lot of questions to answer, and because this is the Talmud, it's not a systematic commentary. They don't answer all of the questions, and that's fine. I don't hold it against the passage at all. So many commentators actually have adopted this view. 
right? In other words, they take for granted that King David didn't commit technical adultery. He did something very bad, but nothing as bad as that. And that's the way most yeshiva students are taught. Abarbanel shows up, and Abarbanel, I love his consistency. Before he was blasting Rambam, how dare you don't take the Bible literally? So he says the same thing here, right? Source 10. These words of our sages are the words of Drash, and I have no need to respond to them. What we just read in source number 9 has nothing to do with the text. That's what he's saying. I prefer to say that David sinned greatly, and confessed greatly, and repented fully, and accepted his punishment. And in this matter, he att- manner, he attained atonement for his sins. In other words, let's just take it literally, because that's what we do when we read the Bible. There's no get here. There's no divorce. It's adultery. And then King David repented. And that's something which is very... Very worthwhile. So here's a, here's a passage where, again, many yeshiva students, not only do they not take it literally, but they would say, if you do take it literally, you're doing a terrible disservice, as in a terrible religious infraction, by, by, by treating King David scornfully, even though the majority Talmudic view of Arbanel and others understand very well that the story is intended as literal. So these are pretty hot debates, and there are many, many other examples. I tried to cover various arenas so we could put it all together. So what do I do with all of this? I actually take the whole Bible literally. I think it's the right way to go as a believing Jew. But in a non-fundamentalist way. Now, what matters is just to give you examples in these different arenas. Hosea married a, a prostitute who then cheated on him and had kids. And that taught that the people of Israel were gravely unfaithful to God. I suspect that if I took a time machine back, I would actually see these, you know, the, there would be six people at the table, not two, right? But if not, so, okay, let's say it was a vision. Do I read the story at all any differently? No, that's mechanics. That's the what happened question. What I care about is, what is God's word teaching? If we took a time machine back with Bilam and his donkey and the angel, okay, odds are high, it's a parable or prophetic vision. But let's say it happened for real, okay. That's fine. What difference does that make at all? Well, I don't care what happened to him, I'm not writing his biography. What I care about is, what is God teaching through this story? God created the world in seven days, that's why I keep Shabbat. Right? There's the God-Israel covenant. And if the world is 15 billion years old, fine. Okay. You're not gonna, what would be devastating are two things that would be bad. If science can demonstrate that the world is 15 billion years old or anything more than 6,000 years old for that matter, okay, it's demonstrated that's done. There's no, to pick a fight with that is insane. Another big mistake, though, is to try to show actually the Torah says that the world is 15 billion years old and reinterpret like crazy to make it match science. That's a disaster. Right? The Torah says the world was created in seven days, and that's, that's, that's the way it should be. I'll give you another example. We're all descended from one couple. Right? Pretty cool, right? We're all cousins. So, and not only are we all cousins, but everybody in the world is all cousins. So let's say some... Gen- and by the way, the reason why the Torah is teaching this is to say that there's no room for racism in our religion. Right? There, is no, there are no races. We're all one family. The Torah makes that very, very, very clear. So I believe this is God's word. We're all one family. If geneticists will tell you, all right, seriously, what is the likelihood, folks, of all the different races on the planet having genetic mutations from one couple over 6,000 years? Answer, a scientist is not allowed to use the word impossible, but that's really what they're thinking, right? It's not, it's not, that's just not the way that it was. Presumably there were other families out there, other branches. Okay, so... That doesn't say, oh, now we're allowed to be racists because the Torah has been scientifically debunked. Who cares? We're all descended from one family. I'm taking it literally. It doesn't mean it's historical. It doesn't mean that you're going to pick a fight with scientists. It means that the world was created in seven days, and that's why we keep Shabbat, and, and, and we're all descended from one family, and that's why, we, that's why we, racism is absolutely to be repudiated. King David committed adultery and murder. That's what the text says. There's no way around that, right? It's not a matter of interpretation. So that's what it is. If, by the way, there was a get, okay, that's fine. I'm not writing his biography. This is really when I learned the story of of the prophet Shmuel and and the book of Shmuel. King David's biography isn't my issue today. My issue is, wow, these are very powerful lessons about power and corruption and repentance and many, many other things that we discuss in an in-depth class. They're very valuable. You have to take it literally. Not in a fundamentalist way, because again, it could well be that some of these interpreters are correct some of the time. 
Right? I have no problem with that. There's no, there's no reason to ever pick a fight with scientists or Talmudic passages or other interpreters. And a couple of people who said this very bluntly when this all became an issue in the 19th and later on in the 20th century were Rabbi Shmuel David Luzzato in Italy in the 19th century. It's in Source 3. I suppose at some earlier stage in the game I was planning on quoting him earlier in the process. Intelligent people understand that the goal of the Torah is not to inform us about natural sciences. Rather, it was given in order to create a straight path for people in the way of righteousness and law, to sustain in their minds the belief in the unity of God and his providence. And this is not a science textbook. So he was dealing in the 19th century with these big faith science debates that were going on. He says, the whole debate is a huge waste of time. Like, there is no faith science conflict. If a scientist can demonstrate something, that's terrific. That's the way that it is, at least as of today, until another scientist disproves otherwise. But to hurl the Torah, a literalist reading of the Torah against that is absurd. He says that's not why we learn the Torah. The Torah is teaching us divine truth. Professor Yeshaya Leibowitz, who is not known for his subtlety, in Source 11, says it very bluntly, and you know, he, I can't say things this bluntly because uh, you know, I, I, t- I have a different tone than he does, but he, but he says it very correctly. If the Holy Scriptures were sources of information, it would be difficult to see where their sacredness resided. The idea that the Shekhinah, God's presence, descended on Mount Sinai in order to compete with the professor who teaches history or physics is ludicrous, if not blasphemous. In other words, what he's saying is that Protestant fundamentalism is such a misguided way of reading the Torah, it's painful. The Torah is not a replacement text for a science book or a history book. That said, by the way, let's just default back to Rambam's view. Rambam believes that 99.7% of the whole Tanakh should be taken literally. I want to make sure that that point is clear before we walk out of here. Rambam, the one who is at, you know, takes some heat for certain marginal examples, and, and they're sweeping examples. There are a lot of angels that show up. So every one of those for him is a vision. And for every one of him, one of those, Ramban is going to go after him and says, this is an outrage. There are bunches of examples like that. But that all said, Rambam agrees with all the others that when it's reasonable, the starting point of tradition is that this is all real. But when one is dealing with either factual contradictions or serious logical problems that one struggles with, then there's certainly a lot of wiggle room in our tradition and people shouldn't be calling each other terrible, terrible names or not being willing to talk to each other. Uh, and and that's, to me, that's what I try to do through the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. Like, that's what it's about. It's really just hearing these views which are really at each other's throats and understanding. It's like, okay, let's hear where they're coming from. You get it. And if you just pull out the dogmatic name-telling, name-calling, you realize we could all get along even though we totally disagree. Right? If somebody believes, Bilam's donkey definitely talked. Okay. Somebody asked Rav Salavajic, I only heard this, of course, because I'm part of the first generation of people who never saw him, let alone sat in a shiur. Somebody asked Rav Salavajic, do you think Bilam's donkey talked? And he said, I see talking donkeys every day. <laughs> so... Uh, it's, uh, that, all, that all being said, I obviously didn't take on the, uh, the question that the student was asking, but on the other hand, it's a great response. And, and uh, that, that, that all being said, Rambam, Rambam on the book of Job, I want to wrap up with him. The Talmud already debates whether the Job story happened, whether it's a historical event or whether it's just a parable describing, well, bad things happen to good people. So Rambam believes it's a parable. He doesn't think that if we took a time machine back, we would actually see the story unfolding at all. But he says, look, maybe it happened. If that makes you happy, it happened. Source 12. To sum up, whether Job has existed or not, it's source 12. With regard to cases like his, which always exist, all reflecting people become perplexed. And in consequence, such things as I have already mentioned to you are said about God's knowledge and his providence. In other words, look, I don't think it happened, says Rambam. But if you think it happened and I think it didn't happen, we can still get along because at the end of the day, we all are concerned with the problem of why bad things happen to good people. And that's why this book was written. That's what we should be... Keep your eye on the ball is what Rambam is saying. It's not a, we're not writing a history book about did Job exist. We're writing about how do we wrestle with this painful and unsolvable problem, which is why the book of Job is so powerful and so excellent. But that's for another time. What's for our time now is exactly what Rambam is trying to do. The bottom line within tradition is that stories happen, but even for those where there are fierce debates, to me, my policy is, happened as it says, and if it didn't, okay. It's really okay. What matters is what are the lessons that the Torah or the whole Bible are trying to teach, and I find that 
It really matters zero, unless you're a historian. What exactly happened with regard to this angel or this donkey or the scientific point or whatever it's going to be. You never ignore science. You never ignore facts. And that all being said, I think that that's how literally one should take Tanakh. One should take it literally and understand, not in a non-fundamentalist way. I thank you all for coming out. It's, it's late, it's cold, and so before everybody goes and or bombards me with further questions, just a couple of announcements. I brought, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, but for those who didn't hear it or for those who did hear it, there are copies of our most recent journal from the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals, issue 24 on issues of Jewish education. They're in the back for you to take. Go to our website and look at more. Our web address and my email address are on the source sheet. My business card is just my source sheet for all of the all of the different things. I believe right next to those journals, unrelated to the journal, but still wonderful in its own right, is lots of cheesecake. And I thank the sponsors of, for the event for putting that out. Thank you so much, and Shabbat Tov. Thank you. Thank you.